This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in however you're doing so. Be it through 1037thegame.com, the free 1037 The Game mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other way that you consume your favorite podcast. And it's been a busy, dare I say, hectic week in the sport of professional wrestling, especially the last couple of days. So let's get right into brass tacks and what's causing all this with the three count. First things first, we got to go over to the land of the rising sun involving the god of New Japan Pro Wrestling, Kota Ibushi. His first title defense post-Wrestle Kingdom was announced last week, and he's going to be taken on in night two, the main event of night two of the new beginning of Hiroshima on February 11th against Sanada, who had a really darn good match against Evil back at Wrestle Kingdom. Definitely a match I think you need to go out of your way and check out. But the night before, we'll see Ibushi team with Tomoaki Hanma. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Take on the number one contender, Sonata, and Naito. Should be a really fun matchup because we all know the relationship with Naito and Ibushi. Kind of a pseudo rematch of what happened at the most recent pay-per-view of Wrestle Kingdom 15. Those two absolutely tore the house down. So trust me, you're going to want to see this main event right here. Then we get to the world of the WWE and they had big news drop on Saturday after noons, like Saturday night, I would say, with the next three WrestleMania sites being announced. We're officially in WrestleMania season, and the next three years of WrestleMania venues look to be set in stone right now, today. Now, barring a total apocalypse scenario, looks like everything should be set in place. We're just going to go ahead and say that right now. We can't say it outright 100%. All this is set in stone. Who's to say that, you know, some of the stuff I'm going to get to in a second doesn't wind up changing. We all we always know the card is subject to change, and 2020 taught us that in a big way. But this year's WrestleMania will be taking place inside the home of this year's Super Bowl, Raymond James Stadium, home of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, like last year's show was supposed to. Obviously, you're owing Florida a show, so they're going to do this. And there's a couple different things to talk about. One is the show will be moving to two nights for the second straight year on April 10th and 11th. And there will be a limited attendance for the show of shows, the first WWE event to have a non-virtual crowd or a crowd at all since, like, March 9th. If I'm not mistaken, is March 11th was a Wednesday, and that's when everything went to hell in a handbasket. So, yeah, March 9th was the last time WWE had a show with live crowds. That was a Monday Night Raw show, and then they had SmackDown Live from the Performance Center that Friday. I think NXT might have had a live crowd as well, but we're going to count just Raw, an actual live crowd in a neutral arena, not like the WWE, and they do their show in full sale every week. And who knows? I I don't remember if it was if that episode was already taped or not of NXT, but that's besides the point. Next year's WrestleMania will be over in Jerry's World on April 3rd, and hopefully we get full attendance for that show. Then we'll get back to the City of Angels on April 2nd, in 2023. So you got three WrestleManias. You already got it mapped out. You'll be having that final show in SoFi Stadium for WrestleMania 39 before you get to WrestleMania 40. Wherever the hell that show is going to be is anybody's guess. Obviously, nowadays it's more of a bid on 
thing versus what it had been in the past. But we've got the next three WrestleMania set in stone, at least in terms of dates and venues. Now, what I, why I'm saying that is because for the second straight year, WrestleMania is going to two nights. It's something I've always been kind of thinking about over the last few years, like especially after Wrestle Kingdom did nights one and two. And I think having that, it's a two-night gate. And I'd say treat this, I think WWE should 100% treat this like a actual, you know, sporting event slash a music festival. Treat this like a music festival. And you make this a three, four-day thing where, let's say, you have... On Thursday night, you have the Hall of Fame ceremony. On Friday, instead of SmackDown on Fox, you make it WWE NXT TakeOver live and free on TV. On Friday night, you had that. Or you do NXT TakeOver further down the road. You have something, or you can figure out a way to make it two nights and have four days worth of really good concert, five days even now, because you got NXT on Wednesday be a TakeOver-esque show on Wednesday night, Thursday night, you have another big event that's going to be going on. You know, Friday, Thursday, you have something like maybe a Hall of Fame or a special Thursday night SmackDown because Friday would be reserved for the Hall of Fame. That could be aired on Fox and Network, all that stuff. Then Saturday and Sunday will be your main event, and it's WrestleMania. You, I, I keep saying it. You can actually pull off a two-night WrestleMania show if you have two really solid main events that you can help fill that void and fill that gap. Because if you don't have two really great main events, it winds up turning into a little bit of a bleep show, at least from my observations of past WrestleManias. This could be a great idea going forward. Rather than have a 16-17 match show over the course of seven hours, you can have two shows that have eight matches apiece, and they all run about eight, three, four-hour length. And people aren't burnt out. You can have it be a full like four, five-day thing and put it all inside one fee or make individual days. If you don't want to go to NXT TakeOver or you don't want to go to the Hall of Fame, you can just get your two days of WrestleMania and and enjoy that. I think there's a way that WWE could utilize this format going forward post-pandemic because I think this is a great idea. And New Japan did it first. I think they absolutely knocked it out of the park. But the fact that you'll have potentially 15,000 fans, I believe that's how many they added attendance for the Tampa Bay WFT game a couple weeks ago. So I think they could wind up getting that. So WrestleMania this year is going to be on the 10th and 11th of April. They're bringing back Fastlane to kind of fill that void. I believe it's going to be on March 21st, which I'm cool with. I'm cool with. As long as you have like some gap between. And it's Fastlane isn't treated like a stopgap. I need something that's going to make Fastlane mean a little bit more. Maybe like a fast track to Mania type match where you have like a gauntlet to determine who's going to be on the other brand facing for the title. I, I, there's a way you can do it. I'm going to try and figure that out one day. But again, the next two years, it's seemingly right here, right now, going to be a one-night-only event, which, again, that's fine. But I feel like they, they're missing out on opportunity to do something really cool with the future of WrestleMania being two nights instead of just one. Because, again, you can make this a whole week event if you really want to. Meanwhile, Dark Side of the Ring Season 3, there was a lot of big updates over the last few days. One of those involving one of the greatest wrestlers in the history of our sport. Stone Cold Steve Austin will be appearing in the first episode of the upcoming season talking about the late Brian Pillman. Obviously, tag team with him back in WCW was involved in a big angle with him in the WWF. That many consider to be one of the big catalysts for the Attitude Era. And obviously, the passing, they're going to be talking about that a lot in his son, Brian Pillman Jr., talked about it on Twitter, saying he can't wait for the world to see this story be told. I can't wait for it either. No premiere date has been announced, but I'd like to think it's the summer 2021, presuming if they've already 
finished filming all the documentary subjects and getting all the guys there and everything in between. Because there's so much stuff that they're doing for this. I can't wait to see it. Because some of the other episodes that they've already announced being the Dynamite Kid, Grizzly Smith, the Bruiser Bedlam, XPW, which, by the way, the fact you have Nick Gage on that one, all the way here for I think one of the more interesting ones that I think could be the series, the season finale, I should say, not the series finale, because I don't think this thing is done anytime soon, because there's plenty of dark stuff involving the sport of professional wrestling, but it goes it goes without saying, the WCW New Japan show in North Korea is going to be an amazingly fun little bit when it comes to Dark Side of the Ring, season three. Meanwhile, Monday Night Raw, my goodness gracious, they continue to blow my mind every single week and in the wrong way. First things first, right after I got done taping this show, I got ta- done taping last week's show, and I was already kind of mixing it down. I wasn't going to add anything more or anything less. Of course, I see WWE actually, one, acknowledges COVID-19 because Drew McIntyre contracted it. He is being isolated right now, and best wishes to him because I was just, I, again, this popped up right after we went off the air. Right after we finished taping the pro- the podcast, and my goodness, I was like, "What is going on here?" It started started blowing up on my feed. But again, best wishes to him. But the fact that they actually acknowledge it and acknowledge how serious it is, because again, I mentioned it earlier. March 9th was the last time they had a show, and never outright mentioned that one word for one reason or another. They actually mentioned it multiple times throughout the show and mentioned that Drew McIntyre is going to be ready. Presumably, he'll be back in time for the Rumble. And, of course, he doesn't have any severe symptoms. It didn't seem like he did. It seemed like he was going to be A-OK and said he had no no real symptoms. He was largely asymptomatic. And Meltzer, according to his sources, says he actually was a little bit more symptomatic. But I'm like, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to be an epidemiologist. I'm just going to go with what Drew McIntyre said, even though it may be a lot of, you know, malarkey. I'm just going to go with the what the guy actually said versus what Dave Meltzer says in this one. But it was crazy to see this actually being acknowledged because they never have outright said that word not one time in any of their program. They just acted like, you know, the world's different, and obviously we can't have live shows at this point with crowds. Might they going to change that for WrestleMania, but who knows? Maybe things will be better come April. Might things will be a lot worse in April of 2021, but, you know, we'll see how that th- thing goes. But it was wild. To see that, in order to have to change the entire story of the show and the fact you have, you know, Drew McIntyre testing positive for COVID-19, they announced that they have him do some pre-recorded videos from his cell phone talking about how he's feeling fine and accepts the challenge of Goldberg. And they changed a lot of the show, having Triple H and Randy Orton squaring off in the main event, which I'll get to in a second. But the other thing that I just I, it just stood out to me like a sore thumb was the fact they're redoing the Al Wilson, Don Marie angle in 2021. I never in a million years thought they'd be bringing that thing out of the coffin of bad ideas. And they're doing it with Ric Flair and Lacey Evans. At least that's what it looks like to me. And it's very weird because again, they've built Lacey Evans up as a heel that turned her into a baby face because she's a proud mama and a, a, a good family. They've, I think they've featured the husband. It's like, okay, you know, you do this one thing and then you flip it around and you run this angle after it, it very much just confuses me. And I think they should just do away with the gimmick, but it's the fact that they booked themselves in a corner with the way the end of the match the week before I talked about it a lot was the fact that it was a botched finish and they had to kind of change 
everything. They had to scrap the entire show and realign like a lot of different things and, and change this entire like it was supposed to be a one-off. It seemed like, and now it's become more of a recurring theme for the show because of the botched finish in the tag match the week before. So it feels like this is a hundred percent Al Wilson, Don Marie, but this time it's Ric Flair and Lacey Evans playing the role. And I'm just sitting here. I'm, I'm, I'm getting very frustrated with it. Then we get to a thing that I'm not quite as frustrated about, but I'm glad they have at least started to acknowledge, Hey, you know, Alexa bliss didn't get burnt to a crisp. Randy Orton showed actual mercy because of the main event. You had, you know, Triple H break out of the sledgehammer, then the sledgehammer catches on fire, then boom, Alexa Bliss pops up out of nowhere and throws a fireball into Randy Orton's face. Yes, that is a sentence that actually happened this year. What the hell? Like, like, and again, I love the fact of how they did it, where Alexa Bliss just put the pain glove over her neck and then threw the fireball at Orton. Again, this was a five-star kind of show, and I was just looking forward to to seeing what's going to happen next with this storyline. Is The Fiend going to come back? It means there's just so many things running through my head right now, and I just don't know where this whole thing, where this end game is right now for the WWE. Because Ray Dorton did a bang-up job, put this whole angle together. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the future is going to be for Alexa Bliss, Randy Orton, The Fiend, and whatever the hell they're going to do with them. Because there's so much uncertainty. Because you think about it. The dude got burnt to a crisp. He's dead. Like, how do you bring back somebody that's dead in the storyline? Obviously, you can kind of say, hey, the Fiend is no longer around, but Bray is back. And it's Bray as the Firefly Funhouse guy, not necessarily the he's the wacky zany guy, but still has that old Bray Wyatt tendencies, has that Bray Wyatt old school swamp man persona. I think there's a way you can do it. I don't know how. But I think there's a way you can retcon the Fiend or Bray Wyatt back into old Bray, but you make it a slow build. And one of the things that I was absolutely disappointed about when we launched this podcast was the fact that we were in the smack dab in the middle of the pandemic and local wrestling in the state of Louisiana, nowhere to be found. So I'm glad that local promotions are back in action outside the state of Louisiana, but the point still stands. Local companies, I'm going to try and shine a spotlight on more pro wrestling in the state of Louisiana. Give them a lot of love. In a segment I'm going to call going forward, Think Globally, Wrestle Locally. And one of those was Pro Wrestling 225, and they wrestled in the 601 this past Saturday for their first show of 2021. And from all of what I've heard, it was a solid crowd in Columbia, Mississippi for their first show of the year. And it was definitely interesting to look at how the whole thing looked in terms of the card. I'll start off with a Columbia Battle Royale in Columbia, Mississippi. Chase Matthews won the clash. And that was just really cool to see those two, that man, get the win of the Battle Royal. Then we have Rep the Threat Thibodeau beating Frankie Thomas by pinfall. Frankie Thomas recently appeared on AEW Dark a couple times. Also got beat up by Lance Archer. Really cool to see him get a lot of love. Because I remember seeing him at APW a few years ago. And he definitely had a, he has a great gimmick. I love his gimmick. But Rep the Threat got the win by pinfall. Wild thing got Avery Nolan to not have his heart sing, but he tapped out by submission. Wild thing gets the win. And then DNA beat the dream team by pinfall. One hell of a match between those two. Then we get to JD Jenkins beating Vladimir Koloff by knockout. What an interesting finish right there. 
Then we get to crown some tag team championships for Pro Wrestling 225, a tag team tournament that finally reached its conclusion after being paused, obviously, due to COVID-19. But the overboys, Christian Blake and Jordan Yah, defeated Troy Farrow and Rob Horn by pinfall to win the Pro Wrestling 225 Tag Team Championships. Also, apparently, the apparently it's a Freebird rule. Maybe we see the manager, Brett Ian Landry, get involved in a match down the road. A little bit of Freebird rule action. But really cool. This actually kind of came to an end, and the storyline wrapped up. The Overboys got over. And then the penultimate match of the evening, we had special guest WWE superstar, former WWE superstar, I should say, Chris Masters, take the pinfall loss to Mustang Mike. He felt the boom and Mustang got it done. Then the main event, it was title for title with Michael White defending his SEC championship against Corey Constantine. But Corey Constantine retained the title by disqualification. One heck of a show and definitely interesting to see how that whole storyline works out. Could we see another title for title match down the road? We'll just have to see. So make sure you check out Pro Wrestling 225 on your favorite social media gimmicks and show them some love while you're at it. Then we get to AEW Dynamite. And this was a really good show. I'm going to go ahead and break out some of my big takeaways from the show. And I think the opener is the one that stood out to me the most outside of, obviously, some other angles. But the fact we got Pac Eddie Kingston being an opener was really cool. And they hyped up everything really well because this was months in the making. And it really was cool how they kind of fit everything in this package, showing how when pa- when Eddie Kingston got the Lucha Bros into the group, he was winking at Pac, which you didn't necessarily think about, but they actually made sense of it. It was really awesome, and it was all about Pac getting vengeance and starting to finally just beat the crap out of Eddie Kingston. And this was a dominant performance from him, firing out the gates with a drop kick and a dive to the outside. Big story was the other members of the feuding stables at ringside, you had a moment where the bunny wound up kind of getting some momentum going for Kingston, raking the eyes. But Kingston really started to build momentum in his favor late in the matchup with a hard clothesline. But they only got a two count, and then Pac eventually got the win with the Black Arrow. Really solid opener. And it's great to see this storyline be continued. Pac continues to assault Eddie with the brutalizer to attack the injured shoulder dad early in the match before Butcher and Blade ran in. Then the two stables squared off. All of a sudden, Lance Archer runs in. And Kingston and Crew Bale leaving the Death Triangle and the Murder Hawk Monster alone in the ring. And it's safe to say that this relationship between the group and Archer is tenuous at best. Really good stuff right there. Really loved how it was a good opener. And it wasn't just, oh, hey, let's go ahead and like progress the next storyline by having a bunch of guys just get in the ring and schmoz. No, this actually made sense. Then we get to Inner Circle and their New Year's resolutions. I loved this segment. One thing that I love, I think this may have been something maybe not everybody caught, was MGF during his New Year's resolution. He said, hey, like fat people got to go. And like after about a few seconds, Chris Jericho just stands there. He has this reaction to it. Like He apparently realized that was a jab at him, maybe also a jab towards the reaction from NBA Twitter a few weeks ago when AW Dynamite aired following, I believe this is opening night, of the NBA season, which was a really good show, by the way. Go check that out when you have a chance. And then we got Sammy Guevara, by the way, had a great job in this angle. So we get to him saying Jericho's a tag team slut, which was an amazing line in and of itself. Never thought I'd hear that, but it makes sense because I, I was like, really, is he that? Then I'm like, yeah, he is. Because I remember the short-lived rated Y2J, which probably could have lasted a little bit longer if not for 
Edge injuring his Achilles. Jarrah show Y two AJ for all of the three weeks they did that. KO and Jericho, Jericho and Guevara. Now we get Jericho and MGF. So the phrase makes sense to me. It was really cool the fact they really had a lot of fun with that. Then they eventually set up a triple threat tag team match. Who is the official tag team? Who's going to officially contend for the tag team titles? And that's Jericho and MGF versus Proud and Powerful versus Sammy Hager. Sammy and Hager. And honestly, I popped for that, and I popped even more for Guevara not realizing why Sammy Hager was actually funny. That put me over the moon. Then we get to the match that everybody was looking forward to, so because it was billed and hyped up as Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, but nope, the Wolves pulled from over their head, and now it's Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers taking on the Varsity Blondes, Brian Pillman Jr., and Griff Garrison. Nice to know who Griff Garrison actually is, and Danny Limelight. Danny Limelight was the breakout star in this match. I'd never seen stuff from him, but he looked great in this one. Rope walk to her, Conrana was really rad. The Varsity Blondes had some highlights. Again, never really seen much of you know the, the Varsity Blondes in action, but their heart attack variation of the blockbuster with that was really cool as well. Short match, but Anderson gets the pin and the win with the Magic Killer. And then John Moxley comes out. And these two immediately get into it. And it just becomes a full-blown Pier 6 brawl. Wrestlers like the Lucha Bros coming out of the ring. All of a sudden, just people going crazy. The Young Bucks are able to slow down Moxley, but the Lucha Bros super kick them for their efforts. And the brawl continues. Like Jerry Lynn has to come out to be separated again. The fact that we are building this invasion angle of impact, this was a badass way to do it, and I love the fact that they have really made this about them. And I'm just going to go ahead and jump over to the main event of the night, because that was about the only other thing I was looking forward to watching, and I want to kind of have to like, speed through this before football started yesterday. And I loved how they sold the weight difference to the matchup. I talked about the weigh-in last week. They did this again, and it was perfect. I love the fact that they Continue to talk about this. And it really showcased Brian Cage as being an absolute monster. It looked even more like a beast than he normally does. So Cage like caught Allen midair on a it looked like it was a Tope Suicida. Hit him with a vertical suplex on the outside a little later on. He picks him up like he's grill press. I mean shades of Bam Bam Bigelow and Spike Dugley, throwing him to the outside through a table that almost looked like he knocked over a guardrail as well. But just looked absolutely brutal and like you didn't know if Darby Allen was like legitimately dead. And they threw him in the ring like a couple minutes later, while in like a stalling suplex position. Darby continued to kind of be like the guy that just wasn't going to go away. Kicked out in an F five and one. Just so damn cool. Flipped off cage. The Darby later on hits the coffin drop on the steel steps. At this point, this match just rules because it's that David versus Goliath story you'd love to see in pro wrestling, and it's perfect. It's absolutely what you wanted to see. Then they had a really awesome spot towards the end of the match with Darby getting a pin on Cage, but Cage just kicks out and throws him up in the air, and then Allen gets up on, I think this is the second rope, hits a double stomp, and then Starks and Hook try and run interference before Darby hits another coffin drop. But Sting comes out, hits Starks with a bat to even the odds, and then Allen gets the win with the crucifix bomb that absolutely looked like it hurt probably more him than Cage because Cage is such a massive son of a gun. It looked like Darby Allen was crushed. But it was a great main event, perfectly well done, and it established Darby as probably one of those top guys 
that I think could be AEW champion in the next like two to three years because he feels like a guy that's getting long term booked as top face. I'm not a huge fan of the Sting thing, but you know it is what it is. One last thing I'll get to before this Cajun Strong Style podcast wraps up is Impact Wrestling's Hard to Kill. First off, I'm so glad that Josh Matthews and Madison Rain are all for commentary. Nothing against them as a, a, a as a group, but Josh Matthews was the worst thing to have happened for Impact Wrestling as play by play. Probably the one of the worst play by play guys in wrestling ever. That being said, for the first show, Matt Trigger and D'Lo did a decent job. I think D'Lo was good to decent at being a color commentator. But my God, Matt Stryker needs to not force things as much. I felt like there were some moments where it just felt like he literally put on a front, especially the reaction to Matt Cardona. If you go watch that clip on YouTube or Reddit or whatever, it is literally one of the worst calls I've seen because it felt just so forced. We talk, we make fun of the, it's it's Christian. That's basically what it felt like with Matt Cardona making his debut where he's like, oh, I'm marking out, bro. Like It felt like it was very much forced. And trying to reference his Royal Rumble match commentary when Diesel and Booker T came out, which, honestly, Mark Cardona and, and I'm a, Ace Austin was an underwhelming match. And a really crap finish, too. Didn't like that not one bit. But we're not going to talk about that. What I am going to talk about, though, is some of the stuff, again, really good show in terms of the in-ring, but I feel like sometimes the storylines and the way they build certain things, it's very freaking confusing. And one of the instances is what's going on with Manic. Manic is TJP underneath the mask. That's what they've been telling us for weeks since Final Resolutions. This is after Final Resolution, they basically said, hey, this isn't Manic. This is TJP. We all know it's him. And they basically say, oh, yeah, all the wrestlers know it's him, but Reed Raju and Chris Bay are trying to reveal it. It's like they already know. Like, why do we care? Like, they've undersold the whole mystery of who's underneath the mask. It, it reminds me a lot of, you know, when Christopher Daniels was coming back and no longer underneath the Curryman gimmick, he was underneath the suicide mask at first, and they said, "Oh, hey, it's it, you're you're the guy underneath the suicide mask." Blah blah blah. No, it was actually not him. Wound up not being him after that, but they they at least had mystery behind it, and they they're ruining this whole thing. And like it, I just sat there I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" The commentary didn't help matters. Like again, Matt Stryker had a moment where he's basically saying, "Hey, it's TJP." Like he's it was weird. And then we get the payoff with Rohit Raju finally taking the mask off of Manic, and it's basically TJP, but with face paint. And then they continue to kind of be very weird with it, saying, you know, the resemblance is uncanny. Look at this. It's it's freaking TJP. Like, you could have just admitted that after. Because it's not like, oh, hey, you know, they didn't strip the title from Manic slash TJP. I'm like, this whole thing's been confusing as all get out. Then we get to Barbed Wire Massacre. Sammy Callahan versus Eddie Edwards. And if you're not a fan of the blood and guts type of wrestling, like like CZW, GCW type stuff, this is not for you. But this is a perfect way to cap off a feud that's been going on for years. They rebooted this feud, and it was just as kick-ass as the last time. The Barbed Wire Massacre is a great way to blow it off, especially the fact they've only used this a handful of times. And some of the spots they had, like... A freaking N64 controller wrapped in barbed wire may have made this the match night for me. Absolutely loved it. They killed it. And it was just so very much well done. Hard to kill. Definitely the big highlight was barbed wire massacre. And then the low light of the show to some, especially Ethan Page, 
was the match between Ethan Page's alter ego Karate Man, which looked very much hokey. And I feel like this is the moment where cinematic matches jumped the shark, the split personality gimmick. I love the fact that they actually did this, but they ruined a lot of spots and made it look, as Ethan Page put it, very high schoolish, and it was underwhelming. But the main event was where it was at, where everybody was wanting to see because it was Kenny. This is the only reason why people were interested in Impact Wrestling Hard to Kill, because it was going to be Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers taking on Rich Swan, Chris Sabin, and Moose. Moose was replacing Alex Shelley, who was ruled out due to undisclosed reasons. Shelley said online outright it wasn't COVID-19, and he was taken out due to precautions, obviously, with his past injuries. it was That was the precautions that were taken. But my God, that may have been the best situation, because I'll say this. I haven't been a big fan of Moose in a, in a long time. Like, I love him in ROH, and then like he just is in TNA, and is just there. He's been killing it, and he absolutely had like some really awesome moments. I mean, the Spanish fly off the top rope. Yeah, we saw Keith Lee do it a couple weeks ago, but seeing you know Moose doing it, you don't see Moose do a whole lot of high flying moves. I mean, we see Keith Lee do a dive over the top rope, so we can say you know yeah, it's expected with him. But seeing a big dude, a former NFL player like Moose do that, it looked badass, and it was a really cool match. Awesome, really. Cool stuff. You know, we saw some doomsday spots in there. Kenny Omega gets the pin over the Impact World Champion with the one-winged angel. Just a really solid match. I was able to watch this with him, uh, our good friend Alan Michael. May he you know, enjoy himself up in Pittsburgh with all those Yinzers. Just a damn good show overall. Just some moments that, again, I'm going to complain about, but I think most everybody's just going to be okay with because I am that guy that's always going to notice these certain things that I'm just not a huge fan of. But that's going to about do it for this week's Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Appreciate you listening in. Be it through the free 1037 Game mobile app, 1037thegame.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your favorite podcast from. And, of course, enjoy yourself. We'll be back next Monday with a brand new edition of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Until then, have a good time enjoying the sport of professional wrestling.